Hi, and welcome to the second episode of The Bench Press. I am Robert Denault, and I'm here with my colleague, Jess Coleman. Here we are. Although I'm not actually here with Jess, Mm -hmm. I have escaped the erratic weather of New York City for sunny Palm Beach, Florida. I'm actually a stone's throw from Mar-a-Lago. How's that working out? It really takes away from some of the pleasantness of the vacation, knowing that there's probably classified documents within a mile or so. <laughs> but the good news is if you commit some sort of campaign finance violation, you're not getting extra data. Yeah, Governor DeSantis won't won't let them get me. Something tells me he wouldn't do that for me. But yeah, it's nice down here. I miss you. But, you know, we obviously couldn't ignore another week of crazy news at the center of law and politics. And so I guess we should just dive right into it, right? Let's do the warm up. So we can't start today without acknowledging the second largest defamation settlement in U.S. history in Dominion v. Fox. What an ending. Yeah, what an ending. I mean, we sort of thought that a settlement was pretty likely. You know, when you're talking about this much money and private companies, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. The topic we want to discuss today is sort of the public reaction, I guess. People being disappointed at the fact that Dominion settled the case. I totally understand it. You know, we all wanted to watch Fox squirm through a trial and and maybe see its hosts, its CEO, Rupert Murdoch, get put on the witness stand and basically get you know dismantled. But the reality is Dominion's a company. And part of the reason that Dominion was really well positioned to bring this lawsuit is because it was a company. Fox usually is in the business of making up crazy stories about public figures who rarely under the U.S. legal system can bring a claim for defamation. If you enter the arena of politics, First Amendment jurisprudence basically says you pretty much have no defamation rights. Exactly. A lot of the chatter was that there might be an appeal here and that if Fox lost, there might be an appeal, might go to the Supreme Court and all that precedent that you're talking about might come into question. And it's the conservatives who have that case law, New York Times versus Sullivan, those First Amendment protections in the crosshairs. But now the two largest defamation judgments, one settlement, one's a judgment, are against Alex Jones and Fox News. And these are the people who make a big deal of the First Amendment protections in defamation lawsuits. They're the ones who need the protections. And so to break this down a little bit for the viewer who might not be as familiar with First Amendment jurisprudence. Under U.S. law and court precedent, the press basically has unfettered First Amendment free speech rights. Under New York Times versus Sullivan and other case law, U.S. courts have made it almost impossible to prove a defamation claim against a U.S. media outlet. And it's created a landscape where media outlets and the range of what is a real media outlet versus what is just an online blog, a podcast, you know, et cetera, has all been umbrellaed under this very broad interpretation of the freedom of speech. Um, But unless you can prove intentional malice by a U.S. media outlet on an issue of public concern, you're not winning a defamation claim. And it's very hard to prove intentional malice about issues of public concern. And so what that has created is an environment where it's just really difficult to bring and sustain a defamation claim, even where a news outlet might publish false information about you if you're a public figure. And in recent years, some of the conservative justices on the U.S. Supreme Court have written allusions um, to maybe we should roll some of this back. And it's usually framed in the context of there's a very powerful press in the U.S. and, you know, talk about whether they're alluding to a liberal press. And it seems like that's sort of what they have in mind. Well, how funny that if they rolled back those free speech protections, it would hurt Fox and Alex Jones and others who are absolutely relying on them in the appellate process if they were to go to court here. Fox, of course, settled and it won't be appealing. Alex Jones uh, I'm not sure what the status is. I'm sure they will try to appeal. It's extremely difficult to meet that actual malice standard under the case law for defamation under the First Amendment. This was one of the extremely rare cases 
where you probably could meet that standard. And that is why people were begging for this to go to trial, for this embarrassing stuff to come out, and for them to actually meet that really high standard against Fox. That would be a really damning thing. The problem is there's a jury. This is a very high standard. And it, it's the way that it should be. You know, I think there's a sort of an urge that, you know, maybe the standard should be a little less. We want to hold these people accountable. We want to get Tucker Carlson out there for all the crazy things he says. And you shouldn't have to, you know, find his text messages at the moment he's saying it, saying that he's lying. I mean, I get it, but it should be really, really difficult to haul a reporter into court and get a judgment against them for saying something that's wrong. And that's why it's great to see them squirm, like you said. It's great to see them embarrassed. But it's not necessarily at a societal, systematic level, the correct venue to hold right-wing media accountable. I'm not sure what the correct venue is, but it is better as a question for the culture to decide than it is one for courts. That being said, everybody was very upset this week, and I saw actual anger toward Dominion for settling and for not getting an on-air apology from Fox, which, first of all, they were never going to get an apology from Fox. Fox has an ongoing lawsuit on the exact same issues with Smartmatic. They're not going to put their people on the air and admit they were lying about the exact same thing. It was never in the cards for them. And to anybody who thinks, you know, oh, well, why didn't they just settle both cases at the same time? It doesn't work like that. They're not the same case. It's different facts. They were never going to come out and apologize publicly. And second, what would that have been worth? They would just get on air the same night and continue their misinformation, they're misconstruing the facts, ignoring certain stories, promoting other stories. What would an apology mean? Just make us more irate when they keep doing the exact same thing in a week? I don't see any utility in it. What I call this mentality, and we see it all the time on the left in particular, is it's sort of the memification of our politics. And this reminds me of when Nancy Pelosi ripped the speech that Donald Trump gave at the State of the Union. And it just became like this huge thing on Twitter. Everyone was sharing it. It's like, there, we got him. Screw him. I loved it. <laughs> if you're at the same time, like refusing to impeach him or refusing to do investigations into Russia, like, I don't care that you ripped a speech. It doesn't matter if they make an apology. It does nothing to actually address the issue. And right. when you hang your hat on these, these shareable, stupid things, that might make you happy in the moment, you're not going to make any impact systematically. And it gets to what you were asking before, like, what can we do about it? Fox News's lies and misconduct should be a central point of the left's political messaging. The way you deal with liars is you don't, you don't necessarily like hold them civilly liable for it because we have the First Amendment. The way you do it is you expose them. Most people are horrified by the sorts of things that Fox News says, the radicalism that they foment. But we never really hear about the craziness that Fox engages in, except on Twitter. But this should be a big issue. Right-wing media should be a big issue. That's how you deal with it systematically. Not hoping that some private company is going to do the job of society. And let's just for a second, for our viewers, look at what they did do. Because they used the discovery process in this case and then the filings that followed to lay out for us exactly what a trial would have laid out. And goodness, some of the emails that they exposed on November 5th, just after the election, Fox host Sean Hannity's show focused extensively on alleged voter fraud. Multiple guests referred to a potential, quote, steal of the election. Fox's chief legal officer texted an executive Hannity is getting awfully close to the line with his commentary and guests tonight. Fox host Brett Baer texts internally that night, there is no evidence of fraud. None. Allegations, stories, Twitter, bullshit. Nothing concrete that will affect the spread in any of those states. That's November 5th. November 11th, Hannity internally says of Rudy Giuliani that Rudy is acting like an insane person. On his show that night, Hannity says investigations continue in multiple key states where hundreds of now sworn affidavits are being filed, lawsuits being filed, alleging serious election misconduct. And let's not forget the software error we're going to be focused on a lot 
wrongfully awarded Joe Biden thousands of ballots that were cast for President Trump until the problem was amazingly fixed. And according to a report, that very same software, if Dominion voting systems was used in 28 states, this is the same day Hannity is internally saying Rudy is acting like an insane person. And Rudy is the person collecting all the affidavits. And Rudy is the person making all these Dominion claims. And Hannity is on the air, given the Rudy, the Rudy legal pitch on Dominion. I mean, it is just staggering textbook intent, right? That's a good illustration of how difficult it is to meet the standard. That never happens. And these people did it over and over again. Oh, it gets even, it's even worse. The next day, Giuliani goes on Lou Dobbs's show on Fox, claims Dominion is owned by another election company, Smartmatic, which is the other company that's engaged in the lawsuit with Fox. He claims twice that Smartmatic was founded to fix elections says they have a terrible record. They are extremely hackable. Extremely hackable. Yeah, right. Extremely hackable. Rudy's expertise in cybersecurity. Uh, after Fox reporter Jackie Heinrich fact checks a Trump tweet, which mentioned this Fox coverage, Tucker Carlson texts, please get her fired. Seriously, it needs to stop immediately. Like tonight, it's measurably hurting the company. The stock price is down. Not a joke. Wow. That is textbook intent. Get somebody who is telling the truth to shut up yeah. or fire yeah. her because it's hurting the company. They don't even believe this stuff, but they're out there parroting it and they like look like they believe it. Right. We see it over and over again. The right is really not about anything like policy or values. It's really just rage. Whatever they can drum up and yell about, they don't have to believe it. Doesn't have to connect any value, any policy they care about. They just want to yell. Right. They just want to be angry. The crazy thing to me is stock prices go up and they go down. This settlement is very real. It's a $787 million. You yeah. Talk about a measurable cost to hurt the company. And it's not going to put Fox out of business, but a stock price bounces back. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just so dumb to be catering to the base this way because it's going to hurt your stock price when in actuality, it's going to cost you real money in a court of law these defamation judgments, these massive judgments, it's the cost of doing business for them going forward. That's it. We'll pay to lie. Right. Because right. that's their whole business. Well, I mean, see how much they can afford. Dominion just showed the playbook for how to get them to settle. And they are not the only entity that is being targeted by Fox. And they may have the most measurable proof. I mean, none of us had ever heard of Dominion. Right until after the 2020 election. If you're an election county supervisor in any state and you're trying to figure out a contract to update your election system and you see the bid from Dominion, you are always going to think of the 2020 election 100%. and these claims of fraud and that you know a quarter of your county might think that they are rigging the election. That's a measurable business damage to Dominion. Yep. I don't want to just keep rattling off these anecdotes, but man, I mean, November 18th, Laura Ingram calling Sidney Powell a complete <laughs> nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy. I mean, it is just unbelievable. Uh, we have to close out the day the Four Seasons Total Landscaping Press Conference. Reporter Christian Fisher says on air, so much of what he said was simply not true or has already been thrown out in court. Host Dana Perino says shortly afterward, I wouldn't be surprised if Dominion decided to take some sort of action against this because, as you said, they have had these allegations out there smearing an American company. They are Canadian. Fisher was personally admonished, according to her later deposition, in which she said she was told she was not respecting our audience. CEO Suzanne Scott's response to these segments by saying, you can't give the crazies an inch right now. They are looking for and blowing up all appearances of disrespect <laughs> to the audience. She adds, the audience feels like we crapped on them and we have damaged their trust and belief in us. We can fix this, but we cannot smirk at our viewers any longer. So we can't inform our viewers of what the truth is. We can't inform them. We can't smirk at them and say, you're nuts. I just hope that these clips that you just rattled off, which are just brazen and just beyond the pale, I hope that we see them again. I hope that we find creative ways to sort of share them and keep them in the public memory, put yeah. them in ads and make it political. Make this an issue because these are central figures on the right. Yeah. Brazenly lying to people, millions of people a night about election denial. And I hope that we don't just cast this aside as, as history. This is very much ongoing. You're right.
institutions beyond just the Democratic Party, the middle-of-the-road conservatives who have abandoned the Trump craziness especially, really need to hammer this home for the people that they know. I mean, Fox, this is the behind the scenes. This is what you're getting on the air. How can you trust anything they report on at this point? So uh, that takes us to our next topic, a new culture war. A new culture war. Well, an ongoing one, one that just never seems to be resolved. So a couple weeks ago, a Trump-appointed district court judge in Texas, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, issued a ruling invalidating the Food and Drug Administration's two decades old approval of mifepristone, which is the first drug used as part of a medication abortion. That ruling was appealed to the Fifth Circuit, a notoriously conservative circuit. They stayed the portion of Kaczmarek's ruling that overturned the original approval of mifepristone, but they put in place some additional restrictions on the use of the drug. The Biden administration then asked for a stay of that opinion up at the Supreme Court. There were a few administrative stays, but just yesterday, the full court issued a stay of the Fifth Circuit's opinion. So for now, at least, mifepristone remains legal across the country. There were two dissents in the decision to stay. Justice Alito and Justice Thomas would have allowed this drug that's been on the market for two decades to just be wiped off while these appeals continue. As this was happening, to complicate matters even more, several uh, attorneys general of blue states, they went to court in Washington state and asked for a ruling essentially saying that the Biden administration could not do anything to change the requirements for mifepristone, basically asking for a standstill. And they got it. A district court judge prohibited uh, the Biden administration from making any changes to the availability of mifepristone. And in his order stated that no matter what happens in any other court, this is a nationwide injunction. So if you're saying, how could those two things be true? You are correct. There were two conflicting orders before the Supreme Court stayed the Fifth Circuit's decision, basically setting up a constitutional crisis. Bobby, what is your initial reaction to this lawfare over abortion once again? You know, you talk about politicization of the courts in the appointments process, in the political side of the process. And it's bad enough, you know, when you throw out these norms and you block nominees when they're nominees you don't like and you shove nominees you know, when you have the numbers and blah, 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 blah. All those things are norms and they're worth discussing and worth getting upset about, but they are part of the politics process. Mm -hmm. Judges fighting each other over policy, that actually is a dramatic escalation of politics at play in the judiciary. And it's alarming. And it's the scenario created by the vacuum this Supreme Court is making in showing that they will overrule existing law in the United States. Doesn't matter how many Americans rely on it. Doesn't matter how many decisions over the last few decades have relied on the right to abortion and Roe v. Wade. Yeah. The refusal to even have a pretext that you're doing law is what's really starting to become alarming. And this ruling sort of raised the bar There is so much about this opinion from Judge Kaczmarek that is just so batshit crazy and off the wall. But let's just get into a couple things. And the first thing is, as I mentioned, this this ruling didn't enjoin recent restrictions on mifepristone or enjoin, you know, loosening of restrictions. This went back and said the FDA's initial approval of this drug two decades ago was illegal. And he used this reopening doctrine, basically saying that When the FDA several years ago loosened restrictions based on years and years of studies showing just how safe this drug was, Judge Kaczmarek said, well, they basically started over and reopened the whole process, and therefore the statute of limitations starts again. And there's a lot of precedent on the reopening doctrine, just made it up, put in stuff there about how the Clinton administration, there was some conspiracy to not respond to lawsuits about this. I mean, just crazy stuff. Well, explain to me. How on earth did these plaintiffs happen upon a judge who shared such a radical view on this drug? Funny you ask. So Judge Kaczmarek has been getting a little bit of a reputation as 
a right-wing zealot who you can walk in front of and basically ask for anything, and he'll grant it. Now, typically in the courts, sort of law school 101, that you don't get to choose your own judge. In this case, Judge Kaczmarek sits in a single division in Amarillo, Texas, and he's the only judge there. So if you can find a plaintiff who has jurisdiction in that area, you can get the judge you want. Right. Um, a district court judge unelected issued a nationwide injunction and was chosen by the plaintiffs. And I mean, for the layman viewer who's like hearing the words nationwide injunction, what it really means is any ruling that would have national effect. For example, this ruling concerned an FDA approval decision. The FDA is a federal agency and all states, you know, depend on FDA approval. And so if you make a ruling in joining an FDA approval, it in and of itself is nationwide. It's not limited to certain states that choose to abide by it. If you issue an injunction against the FDA, that's a nationwide application of that injunction. Now, to talk about some of the other crazy stuff in this opinion, one of the reasons he said that the FDA did not have the initial authority to approve mifepristone was because of something called the Comstock Act. The Comstock Act is an unenforced law from the 1870s, which makes it illegal to mail obscene, lewd, or immoral items. There's a reason this law is not enforced, right? Right. It's one of those ancient relics. Yeah. And not only is it crazy to say, okay, we're going to resurrect this law and say that it's illegal to mail abortion drugs, but this is not a criminal case. Right. A district court judge doesn't have the authority to start interpreting criminal statutes with two private parties before him. If there was a Comstock Act issue, you have a prosecutor charge someone under the Comstock Act, which doesn't happen, and he can interpret it. Is there a civil cause of action under the Comstock Act? So for no. for listeners who don't know, like when you make a statute, it can be a criminal statute and it can also have like a separate provision that says, oh, for any you know individual person who gets hurt by somebody doing the conduct that we made illegal in this law, you have a private right to go to court and right. get damages or get some sort of relief. So there's no civil cause of action here like there's no it's just a federal criminal law criminal law that's unenforced how did he find standing because standing so again breaking it down here you need an injury to you that is particularized and sufficient to go to court and say i'm the right person to bring this case if this doesn't have a civil cause of action what private litigant had that injury So this gets into even crazier aspects of his ruling. The people who are the plaintiffs in this case are just anti-abortion doctors. They said they are hurt because there are potential side effects of this drug or potential complications with this drug that we could then have to treat. How does that hurt them? Isn't that (laughs) money in their pocket? That's a good point. Many studies show that mifepristone is not only safe, it's safer than... Tylenol and Viagra. And yeah, there's a ton of case law in standing about how it can't be too attenuated. You actually have to like ask for something that can be redressed. It's yeah. very specific. There's standing cases on abortion. There's, like, there's standing, standing cases, cases on abortion. on doctors having standing to bring uh, cases where they're afraid they will be prosecuted before Roe was overruled. There have been in the past cases where I think, not every time, but doctors have been found to be able to bring that case on behalf of a patient. Yes. Um, and so so that's an example of where it, you can have standing, even though you're not the person seeking the abortion. As a right. doctor, you might have standing in those instances. Yes. Third-party standing is what that's called, and there's a lot of that in the abortion context. And that came up in this case. The defendants in this case said, why can't the actual people who are taking this drug, if they're injured by it, come and sue? And the obvious answer is because those people don't don't exist. exist. Right. They're not real. (laughs) What Judge Kaczmarek said- Why let that stop us? Right. What Judge Kaczmarek said is that these people are embarrassed. Was there any evidence in the record that he pointed to for this? This is why we do this together. You're asking all the right questions. (laughs) He cites- a survey okay. from a website called Abortion Changes You, no. hashtag Abortion Changes You, and no. said 83% of people on this website called Abortion Changes You said abortion changed them. Let me get this straight. The evidence he used 
to find that the doctors could have standing to to bring this suit because patients would be so ashamed Mm -hmm. to bring the suit themselves about this drug that maybe injured them. Mm -hmm. The evidence to support that is an online poll Mm -hmm. on a website that presupposes anyone visiting it believes abortion changed them for the worse. You could be a district court judge. So that's (laughs) that's where we are. Okay. And the craziness of all of this led the Fifth Circuit, which we should note is an extremely conservative. It's a reason that people go to Judge Kaczmarek also in the first place is because they're going to get appeals to this crazy court. Let's not call them a crazy court. Let's say it's a conservative circuit court of appeals. So the crazy Fifth Circuit, even they said, we're going to stay the portion of this ruling that invalidated the initial approval. And even Justice Alito and Justice Thomas. It was good news yesterday when the Supreme Court stayed this ruling. But let's be clear, Mm -hmm. two justices of the Supreme Court of the United States would have allowed this insane ruling to essentially go forward. They would have allowed Mifepristone to essentially come off the market. Well, they would have allowed it to at least temporarily. Is what right. you're saying. And they would have allowed the Fifth Circuit ruling, right? They wouldn't have allowed the initial ruling to go in place. It would have been the Fifth Circuit's ruling. But the Fifth Circuit's ruling. So it wouldn't have been all that crazy. Well, stuff. not all the crazy stuff. But here's a question for you. How could they have let that go forward if the standing argument was based on this? Well, people are ashamed that they had the abortions, but the, the Fifth Circuit said, mm, we're not going to subscribe yeah. to that. The standing thing was would have been affirmed, basically. That would have been affirmed? Yeah, it was a necessary part of their finding, right? That they had standing, right? right? So they essentially affirmed that part of it. Oh my God. Yeah. So I want to highlight the most important crazy part of this opinion. And it comes in a footnote on page two of the opinion. Quote, jurists often use the word fetus to inaccurately identify unborn humans in unscientific ways. Because other jurists use the term unborn human or unborn child interchangeably, And because both terms are inclusive of the multiple gestational stages relevant to the FDA approval, 26 changes and 2021 changes, here's the important part. This court uses unborn human or unborn child terminology throughout this order as appropriate. Now, let me explain what's happening here. There is a substantial movement on the right to not only outlaw abortion through the state legislatures, but to establish that a fetus, or in this case, they're saying unborn human, has constitutional due process rights. And therefore, abortion is unconstitutional as it applies to that fetus. This footnote sets the stage for that exact theory. I don't think this opinion will be affirmed in full when the Supreme Court ultimately hears it. Right. But it is a necessary part of the process for these crazy ideas to become mainstream that a district court judge signs off on it. There was a time before the Obamacare rulings, nobody in the world believed that the Commerce Clause did not authorize the federal government to force you to buy health insurance. The Tea Party came along, Obamacare became this rallying cry on the right that it was unconstitutional. Scholars started writing about it. A district court judge eventually said it was unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause. And guess what? The Supreme Court, while they upheld it on different grounds, said it was unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause, and that remains precedent, severely restricting Congress's power. There was a time just a couple of years ago when no one thought, or people like us who are just, you know. Eternal optimists. Right. People did not think the Supreme Court would take the step of overturning Roe versus Wade. And when they overturned Roe versus Wade, people said, okay, now it's just left to the states. And the Justice Alito, and who wrote the opinion, said himself, we are just returning this issue to the states. Right. We're like a year later and Justice Alito is dissenting from a stay of a ruling that would completely take it out of the hands of our elected representatives. At our own peril, we assume that things like the law or reasoning or logic or shame serve as restraints on these justices or politicians. But we, we got to keep our eye on what the end game is. Judge Kaczmarek's crazy ruling might not be the law today, but it is very much the end game of the right-wing movement to make abortion illegal through the courts. Basically, two justices at the Supreme Court on board already, possibly more, 
And just because it might not win the day this time doesn't mean it can't. The law is a restraint, it is, but it changes. It just takes a political movement behind it. It just takes some crazy judges signing off on it, some scholars writing some articles about it, and then boom, it becomes the law someday in the summer when you're not expecting it, and it just happens. The thing is, too, this is a moment where the culture is changing, and the Republican Party and conservatives in this country, not all of them, but enough of them, are jumping into culture wars in a way that they have not. They are passing don't say gay laws all over the country. They are banning abortion. They are banning drag queens. Books. They are books. They are taking books out of schools. They are expelling black lawmakers. Things that were toxic are just being normalized. I always thought that the Supreme Court was going to not allow this. Right now, it feels like this was a great way to set up the Supreme Court to look reasonable. Look, you know, we're not banning a drug that was approved by the federal government 23 mm-hmm. years ago. Look how reasonable we are. Right. But that's what they did with abortion for a long time. And then all of a sudden, they overruled the right to abortion. And now they're playing footsie with essentially banning the practice by banning the drugs that are approved for it. I do worry that they do this thing where they seem really reasonable after making scary decisions. And it's just a way for them to sort of delay by a decade or two the next big removal of rights. They're banking on us not paying attention. And our job, your job, is to make sure that doesn't happen. And with that, let's move on. Up next, we take a deep dive into Alvin Bragg's case against the former president of the United States and what you might not know or what the media might not be telling you. Join us after the break. So for today's heavy lift with Donald Trump in the news and the indictment, we want to take a step back and look at how we got here. One of the things I heard from people who aren't lawyers is that, honestly, a lot of them don't know the facts here. Yeah. There has been so much news and so many almost indictments of Trump. And so what we wanted to do today was take that bird's eye view for the average person who might not feel so well versed in what exactly is going on here in Manhattan and give you just a very quick rundown, but hopefully an effective one of the various steps where decisions were made and why Alvin Bragg chose to indict the former president just a few weeks ago. Right. And so we got kind of an expert here in Mr. Denault. Mm. This guy has followed these investigations for years, closer than I have. Closer than anyone should. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, little, <laughs> it's a little alarming. Our outline today is very substantial. <laughs> so I'm going to sort of ask the questions here and chime in where appropriate. I think a lot of people don't realize this started with the hush money, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. As confusing as the last six years have been, we actually are all well familiar with the benchmark moments that happened here. So put yourself back in that surprise, oh my God, Donald Trump somehow pulled it off and won this election. Uh, What happened in the closing four weeks of that election was insanity. The Access Hollywood tape comes out. Everybody's talking about it. Republicans are calling on Trump to withdraw from the race four weeks before the election. I mean, that's never happened. A couple days after that, emails of the Clinton campaign get dropped that have been hacked by the Russians. Uh, These emails lead to like a lot of conjecture on the Internet. Then right before the election, James Comey makes an announcement notifying Congress that his testimony months before that the email investigation into Hillary Clinton had been closed was no longer accurate. He was reopening it for a very brief period because emails had been found on Anthony Weiner's laptop and they needed to go through all these emails. And so maybe Hillary was going to actually get charged. Election happens. Trump squeaks it out and uh, manages to win the presidency. In the months after that, Steele dossier comes out, and it's a drip drip of like 
Michael Flynn is being examined for calls to the Russian ambassador. And there's lots of funny financial deals that are being looked at or should be looked at. And Trump made a bunch of money on a sale of a property in Florida to a Russian oligarch. And here's this dossier that claims that the Russians have been in business with Trump for years. And that continues through the opening months of the Trump presidency. Michael Flynn resigns as national security advisor in February six weeks into the administration. And after that, Donald Trump is repeatedly asking James Comey to lift the cloud and come out and testify that Trump himself has done nothing that's warranting investigation here. When Comey won't acquiesce in May 2017, five months into the Trump presidency here, he gets fired. That leads to the appointment of Robert Mueller, the Russia investigation, and the insanity that has followed. The reason I go into all that is because you have to understand that the nation was hearing about all these things to understand where this Manhattan local investigation arose out of. A lot of people felt that the feds were doing this deep dive into Trump's ties to Russia and we were hearing about it. Then Comey gets fired and this former FBI director is looking into all things Trump. And in reality, he was not looking into all things Trump. Right. And very, very early in Mueller's tenure, the New York Times did an interview with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump gets asked a question by the New York Times. He's looking at your financial dealings crossing a red line. Mm. And he said yes. And Mueller had to then operate from there on out knowing that this red line existed. And why the New York Times felt it essential to draw that out of him publicly, I I will never understand. I mean, I think reporters particularly the New York Times, who had known Donald Trump for many years, his finances were kind of always They knew what he was going to say, and they knew that he had been looked at, and they knew that his finances were problematic. All that to say, for many months, people were operating under this assumption that the feds were doing an examination of Donald Trump's financial dealings. There's actually no investigation happening. In the course of Mueller's investigation, he came across information and evidence that the president's fixer, Michael Cohen, had done a number of things that seemed like potential crimes. And Mueller, not taking an expansive view of his own authority, refers a lot of those things to the Southern District of New York. So no longer under the special counsel, this is just here's this New York set of issues. And one of those issues is a payment made to a pornographic actress named Stormy Daniels on the eve of the election for her silence and whether or not that constituted a violation of federal campaign finance law. And do we know like what the other things were? Yeah, we do. Because he pleaded to a number of things. Michael Cohen. Yes. Right. But it was all Michael Cohen focused. Yes. They they were Michael Cohen focused uh, issues. But begs the question of, so Manafort gets hit with financial crimes, Rick Gates, Cohen, but Trump's financial issues not looked at. Mm -hmm. So Cohen gets referred. SDNY takes this approach. Cohen eventually gets charged with other issues related to the special counsel investigation as well. And pleads guilty to campaign finance violation related to the Stormy matter. And around that time that Michael Cohen pleads guilty, every American is thinking the feds are really like digging through all these financial dealings and all these ties to Russia. And no federal entity is investigating the Trump organization, its finances, whether it committed crimes, whether it's CEO and owner committed crimes. But you can understand why a local authority would have every reason to think it is happening because there's all these clues outwardly that they're going after people who work for the Trump organization, work with the Trump organization. And so when Manhattan starts to look into Michael Cohen too, because some of the things that had emerged about Cohen were like, I think there was something about like taxi medallions, local fraud that absolutely belongs at the Manhattan DA's office. They started asking SDMY, what can we look into here? And SDMY apparently had told the Manhattan DA's office to back off the hush money portion of the probe. What they get is the cooperation of Michael Cohen eventually. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it. Michael Cohen ends up testifying before Congress. There's a very funny clip of him 
alluding to the amount of times Trump lied. He's like more, mm -hmm. 500 times, more, yeah. a thousand times. They get pretty good testimony from Cohen and a lot of cooperation about Trump's participation in underlying schemes that involve his company. And that cooperation leads to this testimony at Congress about lots of things Donald Trump. And there's a moment Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm -hmm. asks a series of questions to Michael Cohen about a golf course. And she asks him about statements of financial condition and other business statements that were made to insurers and banks to obtain lending to fund the property. And Cohen testifies to her that there was falsifications on the documents. The Trump Golf Organization currently has a golf course in my home borough of the Bronx, uh, Trump Links. I drive past it every day, going between the Bronx and Queens. Um, in fact, the Washington Post reported on the Trump Links Bronx course in an article entitled, Taxpayers Built This New York Golf Course and Trump Reaps the Rewards. That article is where many New Yorkers and people in the country learn that taxpayers spent $127 million to build Trump links in a, quote, generous deal allowing President Trump to keep almost every dollar that flows in on a golf course built with public funds. And this doesn't seem to be the only time the president has benefited at the expense of the public. Mr. Cohen, I want to ask you about your assertion that the president may have improperly devalued his assets to avoid paying taxes. According to an August 21st, 2016 report by the Washington Post, while the president claimed in financial disclosure forms that Trump National Golf Club in Jupiter, Florida, was worth more than 50 million, he had reported otherwise to local tax authorities that the course was worth, quote, no more than 5 million. Mr. Cohen, do you know whether this specific report is accurate? It's identical to what he did at Trump National Golf Club at Briarcliff Manor. To your knowledge, was the president interested in reducing his local real estate bills, tax bills? Yes. And how did he do that? What you do is you deflate the value of the asset, and then you put in a request to the tax department for a deduction. Thank you. Now, in October 2018, the New York Times revealed that, quote, President Trump participated in dubious tax schemes during the 1990s, including instances of outright fraud that greatly increased the fortune he received from his parents. And it further stated for Mr. Trump, quote, he also helped formulate a strategy to undervalue his parents' real estate holdings by hundreds of millions of dollars on tax returns, sharply reducing his tax bill when those properties were transferred to him and his siblings. Mr. Cohen, do you know whether that specific report is accurate? I, I don't. I wasn't there in 1990s. Who would know the answer to those questions? Alan Weisselberg. And would it help for the committee to obtain federal and state tax returns from the president and his company to address that discrepancy? I believe so. Thank you very much. I yield the rest of my time to the chair. Manhattan seizes on that and says, there's a lot here that this guy knows. <laughs> and we're absolutely going to be opening a probe here. And so they begin the Manhattan DA investigation into Donald Trump. It starts with the hush money. And what's publicly reported for a number of months is that Manhattan is looking into the hush money thing, too. And that, you know, by now we've seen individual one in Cohen's charging documents. And there's been these questions of, like, is Trump going to get charged in that scheme or not? But it wasn't that they were looking at it, too, right? They were the only one looking at that point. At that point, it seemed clear that SDNY had backed off. Yeah. They yeah. could yeah. not prosecute a sitting president and they're not going to impeach him over the Stormy Daniels thing. Maybe they could have. That they could have been a discount, but, but they didn't. So Manhattan steps into the void then, but begins with the, with the payment. And then around this time, and this always stuck with me, there was one reporter who wrote an article saying that the Southern District was looking into Trump's real estate business. And I never saw it corroborated elsewhere, but I know the reporter and I trust that reporter. I don't know him personally, but I, I followed his work for a number of years and we've interacted online and I, I just don't know him to be a careless reporter. And so some investigation was happening, I think, at a federal level into some of Trump's businesses. And I think that there was probably a realization 
that the next Republican to win office, they will just undo whatever justice that you get sure. here with a pardon. And although we may sit here and think that that shouldn't factor in, I'm actually kind of glad that it factored in because there is no way to pardon your way out of state crimes in New York. There is a obviously a part of me that's like, we want to get Trump convicted and we want to go to prison and see him in handcuffs. But if it just came down to he was convicted of a federal crime and then like Ron DeSantis was elected president, like at that point, it's not like our institutions are healthy just because he goes to prison, you know? No, but I, I think what you miss there, though, is to get a person like Trump who doesn't send emails who doesn't write texts, yeah. you need to flip people. And if all the leverage you have are federal prosecutions and the person you're going after as the big fish has the power to undo all of them, you're not going to flip many people. They saw it first with Flynn, then with Manafort. The only person they flipped was Cohen. And I think that that's telling. I just think they probably weighed. Yeah, and it would have been nice to just sort of have one investigation to get this stuff public quickly. I don't know if this is like how it has to be, but if that's the case, it's just, again, sort of another indication of why you can't rely on the criminal justice system to do the work of politics, which yeah. is, you know, bringing wrongdoing to light for the public is not the job of, of, a, prosecutor. of a prosecutor. It's to prosecute crimes. So this investigation starts metastasizing and the DA appoints a special prosecutor not necessarily a special counsel, but sort of like an outside consultant. Uh, his name is Mark Pomerantz, and he's a former federal prosecutor who's working in private practice at this point in time to sort of lead the investigation into Trump org that stems from Cohen's public testimony. And he and uh, the DA then, Cy Vance, issue subpoenas from a grand jury to a bunch of Trump-linked financial institutions, Deutsche Bank, Mazars, uh, accounting firm, and a slew of other banks that cooperated with the subpoenas. But Mazars and Deutsche Bank did not because Trump intervened and tried to block those subpoenas while he was president. So this begins this second chapter that I think fills a lot of people's memories about this investigation. But Trump fights this all the way to the Supreme Court. He loses every single time. The Supreme Court affirms that the district attorney and a local grand jury has the right and authority to subpoena these institutions and that Trump had no absolute right as a president to block them. And after a little more legal wrangling from Trump after that, the DA obtains the records from Mazars and from Deutsche Bank. So that puts us pretty close to the end of the Trump administration. That fight took, uh, I think, until 2019 was when they heard the Mazars and Deutsche Bank cases. I could be wrong. I just don't think it was 2020. Oh, no, no, it must have been it because COVID been hit. 2020 and it was COVID. Yeah, it was live. Yeah. And we live streamed it. We live streamed it. We did. I love <laughs> yeah. how that's how we remember I it. I know. It's a good, actually, really? kind of a good marker. Yeah. But so, okay, so 2020. So we're in the last year of the presidency. The Supreme Court did not fast track this case. Right. And in the Nixon case, when a grand jury had issued grand jury subpoena for the Watergate tapes, for the, the tapes that Nixon had recorded and he didn't want to turn them over, and the Senate had issued a similar subpoena for the tapes, that case did get fast tracked. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the personnel of the court matters, and they should have been fast-tracked, but there wasn't as much public pressure in this case no. for a for an outcome. And I think it has to do with the fact that Congress wasn't making as much of a deal of it, and we didn't, we didn't really even know much of what was going on. Prosecutions, I guess, had not been brought. Yeah. And there were pending trials in the Nixon situation, and I do think maybe that added a certain weight for lawyers— you want to treat like situations alike, even if they're not perfectly alike. And for a grand jury subpoena in a criminal investigation that is being blocked on what's called Article 2 grounds, I'm the president grounds, mm -hmm. those should be probably treated the same all the time. There really should probably not be a, oh, well, there's no prosecution happening yet in yours, so we'll slow it down. And it's not like the illegal issues are like really complicated right. or there's like a what lot of What if there's facts. no co-conspirator? What if it's just a crime involving one person and that person happens to be the president? Yeah. So why would you make the rule, there's no pending trial, so we won't fast track this? It's not the rule, right? It, no. They didn't they just, say anything. They didn't say anything. They, they just, just did didn't fast track yeah. this. And yeah. in fact, actually delayed it once because of the pandemic. Right. And so it drew out 
further what was already, as we've discussed, a drawn-out process where Manhattan was trying to get corroborating records from other institutions that Trump had falsified insurance, Mm -hmm. bank loans, like basically falsified all these statements of financial condition to obtain favorable business from these institutions. So that's a little side tear of why also it was taking a long time. But it finally gets there in 2020. They came out with a decision in July, I believe, that was very favorable and it was very clear. And it just said, you know, the grand jury subpoena is the oldest and greatest fact-finding tool that grand juries and district attorneys have. Mm -hmm. And so there's no special presidential rule. If it's issued and it's fair and it's seeking something reasonable, you need to comply. I don't give them credit for this ruling. It was an easy ruling. Yeah. And this wasn't a case about whether he could be charged, right? No. This This was just just a case about whether he could be subpoenaed. Third parties. (laughs) In connection with an investigation. Yeah. This case would have said if it they came out the other way, nothing of him. it would have said not that the sitting president couldn't be charged. They would have been ruling that the sitting president was completely immune from being questioned, from, investigated, from everything. That the president was entitled to block anything or anybody right. from being questioned about his conduct. So now we're at 2020, the closing months of the campaign. I mean, we're in COVID, it's Biden versus Trump, Mm -hmm. and the Manhattan district attorney gets a flood of records from Deutsche Bank and Mazars that had basically been waiting a year and a half to obtain. According to this special prosecutor, Mark Pomerantz, who has since left the DA's office, he presented a potential case of repeated false statements similar to the ones that Trump ended up being indicted with a few weeks ago to the former DA, Cy Vance, who was at the very end of his term but was ready to sign off on the indictment and yet did not. And this was December 2020. Uh, We know what was happening at this time. Trump had lost the election. He Mm -hmm. was pressuring people to overturn the election. He was flailing. There was also a change of office happening in Manhattan. Yes. Cy Vance is leaving office. And I do think probably appropriately decided I'm not going to bring the most monumental criminal case this office may ever bring and then hand it over to some other guy. So tell us about what happened next with Bragg, because this is a mm. really interesting. And momentarily devastating. Yeah. For people which, who wanted which accountability. For in retrospect, stuff. just seems yeah. like really bizarre. Why don't you? Uh, the changeover happens in January 2021, a busy month. January 6th happens. And I think within weeks of taking office, the New York Times is reporting that Alvin Bragg has skepticism about the case that's been built against Trump by Palmerantz and Vance. And I think a lot of people who had followed these probes were like, what? Like, yeah. I mean, A, it seems really clear. B, they they wanted the Supreme Court for this stuff. Yeah. Like, you don't fight that fight unless you really have a theory that there's something here that we think we can bring. And this guy comes in and within two weeks is like, I don't know. I don't think I want to do it. It was interesting because part of it made sense in that Alvin Bragg, he's not like, I shouldn't say ideological, but he wasn't someone who was just going to come in and just be like, I just want to get Trump. This is a guy who has serious values and things he wanted to do as a prosecutor. He didn't want to be consumed by this one case about Donald Trump and be seen as like this aggressive partisan because he's not. That makes sense. It was demoralizing. Right. Get this great win. They get this great opinion by Justice Roberts. And so it's like, why would you go to all this trouble? And what? This guy within two weeks is like, nah, it's not nah right. I just don't want to do it anymore. So I will admit, I was frustrated like so many people. You know, we love, we like us and like the media, you love to like read the tea leaves of the investigations and like try to figure out what's going on. But yeah, you're always You're wrong. always wrong. <laughs> You're always wrong. Like this is not, and it's part of the reason like it's it's a shame we have to put so much emphasis on like criminal investigations these days because you you don't know what's going on. This story still in retrospect seems so important because now the influence it's having is I think a lot of these pundits that we were talking about before who made assumptions about this case, they remember this story. And when, when this came out, it cast doubt in everyone's mind about the strength and viability of this case. And it shouldn't have because we don't know. We don't know what actually happened. I 
worked with someone who knew people at the DA's office. And this person had suggested that Bragg was frustrated with how the case had been presented to the grand jury by Pomerantz and Vance and others. I don't know if that's true or not. But this person highlighted the fact that these financial institutions that the records were sought from, they had designated witnesses who were brought in front of the grand jury. And in New York, that confers some immunity from prosecution. The person told me that there was frustration that these banks and insurers were immunized because some of them benefited from this. And they felt that it would be impossible to get a conviction against Trump by painting them as the parties defrauded when they actually benefited from the business. Okay, yeah. So that sort of thing makes sense. Or even if it was along those same lines that he didn't maybe like like the theory they were going with or we were talking right. about before, that maybe it was the opposite. He was skeptical about the case as it had been presented. I think that's right. Right. And he thought I could do this better. I think he thought there's a way to frame this that doesn't make these parties the victims. Right. And this person I spoke to had interesting theories about why maybe mm-hmm. people had done it that way. And and I don't oh, feel boy. responsible airing them on a podcast. But it seems that Bragg, who right away, by the way, came out and said, we're not dropping this. We're continuing to look at this. But at this time, we're taking a pause. We're going to let that grand jury dissolve, and we're just going to re-review this case. I'm not familiar with it. Right. I just started. In retrospect, an entirely reasonable thing to do. You know you're going to be in appellate court. You know you're going to have to stand by your facts. You know that you get one juror who believes that this is a politically motivated thing in the end. You lose. Mm -hmm. And then you're the guy who lost the case against the most prolific right. fraudster of all time who is going to claim he was harassed by you, you know, it'll define your career. Mm-hmm. And so I think in retrospect, the entire press was very fast was to, to raise eyebrows yeah. at what he was doing, where in fact, I think he was regrouping. Vance was apparently ready to bring a charge against Trump at that point. What happens in this interim where Bragg puts it on pause? The Trump org gets charged with crimes. Mm-hmm. Its former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, gets charged with crimes. Both are convicted. Weisselberg goes to Rikers Island. The New York Attorney General starts playing serious hardball with the Trump org. This is all since January 2021. Gets depositions from the Trump children, then from Trump himself, where he pleads the fifth like 500 times. All of this happens as Bragg's got this thing on pause. The company is now a criminally convicted company. Weisselberg at CFO is sitting on Rikers Island. Cy Vance was ready to bring the case against Trump without any of that. That to me actually is kind of troubling. I don't know how that goes forward, but I know that we're in a much stronger position as New York County, as the Manhattan DA. Now we're sitting on real criminal theories of here's prolific fraud that's happened, not just here's a false statement case against the big guy. All those events that you just went through are being construed right now in the public sphere as a reason to question this case. And what you're saying is it's actually the a reason to trust it and believe that it might be stronger than we think. I don't know what Alvin Bragg's plans are. None of us do. But what seems obvious to me that they are trying to do is demonstrate a pattern of cover-ups for illegal conduct that happened through Trump's business for years. Did it take a long time? Yes. But as we've gone through, a lot of these setbacks were pretty essential to getting to today. And when Cy Vance was ready to throw it against the wall and start with Trump, I'm glad we didn't do that. I'm saying we like I'm part of the team. I'm not part of the team. I have nothing to do with it. But I think that it's kind of crazy. We as a society. We as a culture, we in Manhattan collectively decided. We the people. Yes. What would they what We elected someone different. And like I wasn't in Manhattan, so I wasn't part of that election. (laughs) But I think that, you know, we ended up in a the place we always should have been. And we will finally, hopefully get some accountability and some public accounting of wrongdoing. It's taken too long, but this was important to get to this moment 
And you know, the thing is, to finish on this, I don't mean to shit all over media for not doing a good job at contextualizing this, but it's not that hard to contextualize some of this stuff. Can you lay it out over 40 minutes every time? No. Okay. But can you mention that delays came from Trump himself, that they came from dangling pardons to potential cooperators, that that's why there was no evidence here for a long time? I just think it's crazy that we're all seven years later, like really? Well, yeah, this is pretty reasonable, actually. Yeah. What you're really saying is that if you want to know what's going on, you come here to the bench press. I mean, I'm not saying you don't listen to us. You know, we're not the only people out there saying it, but I'm not seeing it everywhere. Yeah. Well, we'll see you again next week on the bench press. It's been a pleasure. See ya. See ya.